Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. With Republicans in control of the House, Senate, and Presidency, options for Democrats are limited. Today, we discuss how we think the Democratic Party can and should move forward until the next election cycle. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsu Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. We're covering CPAC, the DNC chair race, the Trump administration's relationship with the press and the horrific hate crimes in Kansas today in the pearls. And then in the suit, we consider what Democrats should do while they are in the minority party. Finally, in the hills, we're going to talk about what else is on our minds besides politics. Did you watch much of CPAC, Sarah? I watched zero of CPAC, Beth. There are very few things that I care less about than CPAC, to be honest yeah. with you. But I did watch excerpts from President Trump's speech there. And I think that what caught my attention most was the continued discussion of the fake news oh. and, you know, his railing against the fake news media. And I'm just 
not sure where he thinks this discussion is going to go that is in any way productive. I really liked uh, Shepard Smith came out again and like really defined it. He was like, fake news is a fake news organization perpetuating misinformation. Like it also, it just bugs me the way he used that term. Anything CNN or New York Times, I mean, it's not fake news. Now they could have gotten something wrong, but fake news means it's a fake news. It's a shell, right? It's a shell game. Like, that's not what this is. Stop using that term. People are going to get confused and then not know why it's important not to click on stuff from, you know, occupied Democrats. There was a really interesting series of tweets today that said it would be great if we could zoom out about 10 years to see the effect of Trump constantly talking about fake news. I can guarantee you that at some point your local school board members are going to start to say that your community newspaper is fake news because they've reported something that people don't like. You know, this will have lasting consequences if we aren't very careful. I think, I don't know, my perception of it is it's just become such a caricature um, that I don't know if it's, it's sort of easy for me to discount it. And I hope that other people are doing that as well. But I know that's probably unlikely and that the press didn't have a great approval rating to begin with. But I mean, I think they're doing the right thing. They're just sticking to their guns and they're putting their heads down and they're reporting. And I don't think we found a good balance between sort of how they cover his comments on the press. It's sort of meta and I'm not really sure they found their footing there yet, but Oh, how can we not understand the importance of the press? And who is when the congressman stands up and says, well, we should just trust whatever he tells us. Does anybody think that's a good idea? It's totally fair to talk about bias in the press. It's fair to say that information is being presented without context. There are lots of ways that you could push back on what the media is doing without trying to tell us that all of it's a lie. And what's so contradictory is that the Trump administration is almost obsessively going after leaks within the administration, but at the same time talking about how, I mean, I heard the president say, right, the leaks are real, but the news is fake. Well, that doesn't make sense. Those that things don't add up. doesn't make any sense. No. And I think that, you know, it's, I don't remember who I was reading, but they were like, you know, in, in President Trump's speech, he assailed leaks And people who speak anonymously, moments later, his own staffers would only speak anonymously. (laughs) Like, oh, man, I know I'm like a broken record about this. But the the leaking situation is nobody's fault but his own and is not to be underestimated. And blaming the press for it is not going to fix it. Senator Tom Cotton was on Meet the Press this morning talking about how you can't give too much weight to anonymous sources. And Chuck Todd said, well, anonymous sources have have demonstrated scandal in this country for decades, right? That's how we've gotten to some of the most important issues that we are aware of. And and I think Senator Cotton was both right and trying to deal with a very difficult hand because, sure, you can't just Uh, rely on an anonymous source and believe it without any kind of substantiation. But that is what the press is here to do, substantiate those anonymous sources. You know, they're supposed to double and triple check those sources. And if the administration has gripes about how they're vetting that information, that's legitimate. But again, that doesn't make any of it fake news. No, stop using that term. And we can't 
you know, in the same way that we can't get to real policy discussions because people double down on their positions when you make it so um, conflict driven, I feel the same thing is happening between uh, the president right now and the press. No one can uh, find productive paths forward and no one can say, okay, wait, this is where maybe we are screwing up our, our on our end because everybody's just doubling down and in such a defensive crouch. Well, that's a good segue to Sean Spicer. Politico is reporting that Spicer is starting to do cell phone checks of his own staff to see if people are leaking information or not. So oftentimes when we talk about subjects on our show, we give a big disclaimer like, I'm not an expert in this, right? I am an expert in workplace culture. (laughs) So I just want to offer some friendly advice to the press secretary and say that what is causing leaks are a trust deficit, right? Is a trust deficit. And you are not going to shore up trust within your team by expressly demonstrating your lack of trust for every person there every single day. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just so indicative of the mentality, the management style that this administration seems to have. It's kind of the beatings will continue, you know, until morale improves. And that's just not the way to make this work. I think they need to like go on a retreat or something, do some (laughs) trust falls. I don't know. But this isn't going to get it done. And it makes me really sad for him and for all the people on that team because they're trying to do I think delivering information to the American people on behalf of the White House is like the most honorable thing that a person could do. You know, I've talked a lot about how I think the press secretary position is so interesting and so important and such a privilege. And it makes me sad that this is the culture of the folks working toward that objective. Well, and it's exactly what you just said, though. It's a culture. And I don't mind harping on this, that Obama was so good at this, because Clinton was terrible at it. So it's not necessarily a partisan issue. If you don't trust your people, if you don't use your skills to hire the right people, which I don't think Donald Trump has that skill. I'll be really honest. I think maybe he has some business skills. I think uh, PR is one of them. But I don't think he's a good manager. The idea that you would hire people that always have to be proving themselves, you pit them against each other, that is a terrible management style and is most certainly not what was being used in the no drama Obama White House. And if you it's it's you it's you and your choices and your culture and making the people that are leaking the enemy just like you try to make the press the enemy and this false dichotomy of a zero-sum game is only going to make it worse but keep trying keep banging your head against the wall and thinking you're going to get a different result but it's not going to work you're just going to make people angrier and angrier and they're going to trust you even less they're going to feel less loyalty to you and i just I don't know what they are thinking. I mean, even just to have existed in a business world, he does. Like, didn't you run up against, like, a couple people with decent management styles? Like, aren't you, like, friends with, like, I don't know, Tony Robbins? Anybody who speaks with a little bit of authority on how to treat people with respect in your team? I cannot believe that this is the approach they're taking, and they expect good results from it. And maybe it's because he comes from real estate where transaction by transaction there is a a winner or a loser, perhaps. But I think whether it's the White House or like the corner grocery store, you know, workplace cultures either exist in sort of a a harmonious perspective where everyone understands that we rise and fall together 
or in an egocentric fashion where every person there wants to save the world and get credit for it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you see in the Trump White House right now. Trump wants to save the world and get credit for it. And that philosophy is just filtering down. And that is not going to give Sean Spicer a team of people that he can trust to keep information confidential until they're ready to release it and to release it in the way that that they want. Well, and the thing about it is, is it would be painful enough if he was learning on the job. But he's just making the same mistake over and over again and not learning from them. That's even worse. Like, I really don't think there's a big um, margin for error as president, period. But when you not only have a huge margin of error and then refuse to learn and alter your behavior based on it, that is incredibly problematic. There was a piece of me that started observing this and wondering if his age makes him incapable of that kind of learning and reflection, mm-hmm. you know, because this is a person who's 70. So it, you could see him thinking, I know what I'm doing. I've been through a lot and my style has always worked for me before it will work for me again. But I decided that that was unfair of me because I know people yeah, in their 70s who say. are so reflective and who are constantly evolving and adapting and learning things. So I think that was an unfair assumption on my part. What I do think is a fair assumption is that this is pure ego. And when I think about that, it does translate, right? Because I know people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s who have the kind of ego that Donald Trump has and and don't make progress, right? Don't don't evolve as humans. Yeah, I don't don't think it would be um, an overestimation to say that growth and self-awareness are not Donald Trump's strong suits. But it's tough for Sean Spicer because he's trying to handle a lot of different functions at one time, right? He is he is clearly learning on the job in terms of how to interact with the White House press corps. And then you layer on that he's obviously new to leading a team of people, <laughs> or at least leading a team of people in an environment with, with these kinds of stakes. And that's fair. I mean, who is prepared for the White House? But I just really worry about the way he's going about this, if this Politico reporting is accurate. Well, he made another decision. Um, was it? I, I don't know the exact timeline of when he decided to exclude the press from a brief. It was a briefing within his office. Is that what happened? I think it was a gaggle, right? So it was less formal than a White House briefing. But he had he he delivered some information to outlets like. Fox News and Breitbart and, you know, outlets that are more conservative leaning. And he excluded CNN, The Washington Post, New York Times and other outlets that have frequently been the subject of criticism from the president. Politico and Politico. Right. And then a couple of outlets um, voluntarily sort of boycotted the gaggle because of the exclusion of other sources. Including the AP. I know the AP put out a statement that they... Uh, refused to participate because of the decision making. I mean, excluding <laughs> excluding the paper of record is a bold move. I got to say, it's a bold move. It's a well, bad move, but it's a bold move. And then the White House also revealed that President Trump will not attend the White House Correspondents Association dinner. And it's just interesting because I think that in Trump's mind, these kinds of moves are meant to economically harm those news outlets. 
And I think they're having and will continue to have the opposite effect. Mm -hmm. Now, the one thing I don't know about in that vein is the correspondence dinner. It is true that President Trump is a ratings machine. So will as many people tune in for that this year as might have if he were there? I I don't know. But it's not like the correspondence dinner is like broadcast with commercials. They just put it on C-SPAN, right? They so what do. do the ratings matter? Well, but they matter to him, right? That's that's his metric of choice. I guess. I mean, I think that the, you know, the White House Correspondents Dinner, I I think it would have been very interesting. I mean, he he showed he has a slight capability to do that at that archdiocese stuff he did with Hillary back in the during the campaign. So he has the capability of sitting there and listening to people make mean jokes about him. But you know, I don't know what would have happened with the press who would have come. I don't I mean, I'll, I'm of two minds of the White House Correspondence Center on, on one thing. You know, I'm sort of a norm, important, let's keep doing the things we've done. I'm sort of slightly conservative in that case. And I understand that it is a longstanding tradition and that it's important. But at the same time, I mean, it's fine, but it's so... I mean, if you want people to stop hating Washington, D.C. and stop feeling like it's a big city of elites that don't listen to them, maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing if the White House Correspondents Dinner went away. I agree with that. I mean, it's much like the Al Smith Dinner that you were just talking about. It's um, a lot of really wealthy people showing us that we are very far from their experiences in life. And and he did make it through the Al Smith Dinner, but you could tell that he was not enjoying himself. So I don't think it's the worst thing that he's not attending. I just think his purpose for it is probably a little bit misguided. There was some really tragic news coming out of, I'm not sure that I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Oleth, Kansas this week. Uh, Two immigrants from India who, who live there and are engineers were murdered in a bar by someone who said that he was protecting the country from terrorists. He made the remark, get out of my country. And it's really one of the saddest depictions of where we are in America that I've read. And I've read quite a bit about the wife of one of the victims. And this is pretty awful. And it's something that I think we just can't stand for. There was a person in the bar who I think from the account I read who was injured who stood up and heard the man saying racial slurs and went over and tried to um, defend the two men who were killed so it gives me the smallest amount of hope that people um, were willing to put themselves in harm's way to defend other people against awful awful racial attacks and you know it's just it goes to show that the idea that we would, you know, shut down the hate crimes office and the only threat we face is from Islamic extremism, as Donald Trump calls it, is just so inaccurate. You know, we have terrible hate crimes committed by white Americans all the time, and it needs to be on our radar and it needs to be something we pay attention to. If you follow us on Twitter, you've kind of read my thoughts about this, but I know a lot of you listen and and do not. We've talked on the show before about how America is not mine or yours. 
It is ours, and it is ours not as possession, but as responsibility. And so when I read those words, get out of my country, I was just so struck by the fact that it's not your country any more than the victims. And it's really not my country any more than someone overseas who's contemplating coming here eventually, right? It's just, it doesn't belong to us. It's something that we are entrusted with. And I hope that we can reflect on that without more of these incidents happening and realizing, you know, this is my statement about it. If we are going to adopt an America first philosophy, great. That to me means that we live out our uniquely American values instead of saying that we are going to protect our territory. Right. And I was listening to a really great podcast The Human Brain did on immigration that I'll include in the show notes. And they were saying that the idea that, well, my family did it the right way and my family came over and they followed the rules, especially if you have a um, long ancestry in the United States, is so inaccurate. There really wasn't any there was no such thing as an illegal immigrant in the 1700s or the early 1800s. That was just not a thing. And unfortunately, this American ideal that we've been entrusted with, we have repeatedly abused and um, just assaulted and abused. From our beginning, we thought that what it meant to be an American looked a distinct way. And we've just cycled through groups. And it's so obvious that that's what we're doing whether it be the Know Nothing Party in the 1800s who didn't like um, Germans and Catholics to Jews to Mexicans and now Muslims. Like, y'all, it's just so, like I said, just so transparent that, you know, we repeatedly fall short of this ideal and we just pick a new group to pick on. And I wish that we could get past that. And I think that, you know, this weekend, I went and saw I Am Not Your Negro, which is the documentary about James Baldwin, that's nominated for Best Documentary. And it's so phenomenal. And he does such a beautiful job with his words of saying that, you know, America has fallen short of this idea from the beginning, and it does not only harm those who are being discriminated against. It is just as monstrous and harmful and deforming and abusive to the human spirit to be the group on the other end of that discrimination. Um, And until we deal with the ugliness that fuels crimes like this and we deal with the ugliness at the core of our history as Americans and are honest with ourselves, then I fear that these crimes will continue to happen. When you sit for the bar exam, you go through this character and fitness process where the the board of bar examiners looks at all of your history in life. And I had a parking violation and that was it when I sat for the bar exam. And I remember my character and fitness interview where they said, and you really have no you know, criminal history. And I said, well, I have a parking violation. Because to me, it was like, disclosure is the most important thing. If I had lied about that, that'd be a much bigger deal than having a parking violation, right? And so they they laughed about it. And we, we kind of all laughed about how I was going so far to be so careful about such a minor thing. And my point in raising that is, 
we separate out moral culpability for things that are illegal all the time. Mm-hmm. But we assign a level of moral culpability to illegal immigration when that is like a parking violation in terms of you just didn't follow a procedure, you know, yep. you just didn't follow a procedure. And and I'm not saying, again, that we should have open borders. I don't think we should. I think we should have security in our country. I think we should have vetting. And I think our process for all of that is broken right now. And I think people should follow the correct process, but sometimes they don't. And I should park in the right place, but sometimes I don't, you know, Mm -hmm. and we have to, I think, tease out the moral culpability associated with this in order to get real about what we should do next. So are you ready to compliment the other side? Sure. Since we're going to talk about the Democrats a lot today in this suit, I thought I would um, highlight one who probably won't make a big splash in our discussion, and that is Pete Buttigieg. And I hope that I'm saying that even close to correctly. He is the uh, 35-ish year old guy from Indiana who threw his hat into the contest for DNC chair pretty late in the process and then ultimately withdrew before the first ballot. But he... I just admired that somebody of that age was willing to get into that fight. And I felt like he was trying to be a unifying figure and a positive voice and and the voice of a new generation in the political process. And so my hat's off to Pete. Well, I'm complimenting Donald Trump's new chief economist, Kevin Hassett. He, again, sort of uh, following our... um, theme from the from the National Security Council last week. It just he seems like a smart, thoughtful, he has a PhD in um, economics. Um, Do I agree with all his theories and um, policies with regards to the economy? No, I do not. But do I think that he's a smart, thoughtful guy without that doesn't have like crazy ideas, like he believes in free trade, all these things. Yeah, so he seems to be a good hire. And I hope that despite the fact that this position has been reduced from a cabinet level uh, position, that he will have a lot of important influence within the Trump White House. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, 
is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. So next up in the suit, we are going to talk about what we think the Democratic Party should do for the next couple of years as they sit in the minority and face a very strange administration. So we had elections at the Democratic Party's, um, I don't is it a convention? I guess it's a, a convention. But they elected a new Democratic Party chair. It was a competition, for the most part, um, between Keith, Representative Keith Ellison from Michigan and S- Secretary of Labor Tom Perez, who was Secretary of Labor under the Obama White House. It was largely seen as a... Um, competition between um, Ellison, who was supported by Bernie Sanders, and Perez, who was supported by um, Obama and Clinton. And, you know, on my Facebook feed last night, there was there was much um, bemoaning from my friends who were um, active Bernie supporters, the election of Tom Perez, and it was seen as uh, supporting the status quo and that people don't nobody wants um, anything to change. I got two very fired up emails from brand new Congress and Justice Democrats, very upset by the election of Tom um, Perez. And I think that I think it is more than a battle between the the Bernie philosophy and the Hillary philosophy. I think it is sort of an interesting uh, flashpoint for this conversation of what should the Democrats do as a minority or opposition party. 
I'm really interested, Sarah, in your perspective on Tom Perez as the new chair. What what does that mean to you as a Democrat? I mean, I I have an interesting reaction. In some ways, I was happy that Tom Perez was elected. I um, do not think that Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton or the approach of the um, that necessarily the policy approach of those two nominees and the president were the downfall of the Democratic Party. I but at the same time, I am concerned that the approach of the Democratic Party, which I heard somebody uh, describe it as the um, National Democratic President Committee, presidential committee, and the idea that these are the only things we're going to focus on is the election of a president every four years and there's no party building and there's no party support done at the grassroots level. So I guess I'm of two minds. Policy-wise, I don't have any problem with the policy of the Democratic Party. I'm not a person who thinks the Democratic Party should take a hard stance against um, corporate lobbyists or donations. I'm not a person who thinks the Democratic Party is just policy-wise leaving America behind. I do think that there are changes in the organization and the strategy the organization takes that are important and the need to happen. Uh, and I and I also think that a Trump White House in the current state of the Democratic Party could be just what would make that happen, no matter who got elected at the convention. There was an interesting article this week that I'll put in our weekly email about how Trump has divided conservatives into at least three categories. And I would love to see a similar analysis of the Democratic Party right now with both parties. I and I'm not a Democrat, so I don't feel like my opinion about Tom Perez is super valuable. What I do see is that both parties seem to have these fault lines And I can't decide if it is better to try to unite those divided groups under an umbrella, or would it be best to have the fractures just break and go in different directions and see what happens from there? Hmm. It's really difficult. I, I don't know the answer. And I don't know the answer to whether or not Democrats should obstruct at all costs or whether or not they should work together to, you know, whatever compromise they can work out with Trump on maybe some infrastructure deals. I think it's so hard because there are, I mean, if I'm a representative, I'm asking myself, what am I first? Am I, do I represent every person in my district? Do I work for the good of the United States of America? And I am I a Democrat? Do I work for the good of my party? Like all those weighing priorities um, are very difficult to make your peace with and to decide. And it really and also it just really doesn't matter what you decide as an individual if you can't convince the rest of the party or the rest of your caucus or whatever that that's the way forward. It seems to be that the party activists within inside the Democratic Party although not, you know, sort of not strong enough to really upend the status quo of the party itself, are going to make it hard on any Democratic representative that doesn't do anything but obstruct everything Trump does at all costs. Like those people are loud, they are passionate, and they are going to demand obstruction, I think. Um, 
Do I think that that's best for our country or even the Democratic Party? Honestly, I don't know. I can see both sides. I can see how dare, you know, how dare you ask me to work with him when you wouldn't work when the, when the Republican Party obstructed Barack Obama at all costs. And then I can see, yeah, but that's how we got Donald Trump. You know, like this doubling down on both of our on the on the extremes has let led to such a polarization in our party and the fact that Congress like I was listening to CBS Sunday morning this morning. Go with me here. I'm, I'm going to go on a little uh, on a little journey. And they were talking about the technology they use to make dead actors uh, reprise roles like in Star Wars. Do you know what I'm talking about where they take the technology? Right. And right. They, yeah. And they make and it they look were, like Carrie Fisher's in the movie. And she's right. You know, yeah. So they were talking about this and they were saying like, well, this technology has a lot of power. I mean, it's it's not inconceivable that you could take a Democratic or a presidential candidate and make them look like make video that makes them look like they're doing something they're not doing. And I was just thinking about how often as I've been um, listening to podcasts about privacy and technology and how technology keeps growing and how Congress is just absent. And wouldn't it be amazing if we had sort of, you know, our infrastructure was in good shape and we might have some debates about how to address our health care concerns. But like the talk, Congress was just up in Washington, D.C. doing its job and thinking through the policy implications of our ever changing technology and economy and adapting accordingly. Like just all these things are getting left and missed. And we don't have policy on our privacy rights within an ever growing um, technological age. And we don't have policy on um, how that affects healthcare and eco- the economy and all these things that keep growing and growing and getting more powerful. And meanwhile, we're in Congress going, nah, you didn't do it. Nah, you didn't do it. And I, I don't know. I don't know. We get emails. I get emails all the time saying, like, Beth, what do you think the Democrats are supposed to do? They don't have any power. All they, especially like when we talked about Elizabeth Warren, isn't giving the speech the best thing she can do. Maybe. I don't know. And and I'm not a Democrat, so I, I don't know. But what I, here's what I can tell you as a Republican. The Republican Party has been better at being a party than producing elected officials who can govern well. The Republican Party has been enormously successful at party building, at ensuring that they take governor's mansions, state houses, now the Congress and the White House. So if you want to continue the cycle of what we have right now, I would say put all your energy into those things, right? And what troubles me about Tom Perez is that he looks like a version of Mitch McConnell to me. That's a comparison that our chief creative officer Dante makes a lot. Um, I I don't love the idea of that continuing to be sort of the standards of the parties. So For me, what's less important than party building for either party is protecting our institutions and protecting our process and protecting our norms. When we discussed no bill, no break, and that seems like, what, decades ago now, I was really troubled by Democrats breaking all the rules and like sitting on the floor in protest of, you know, they're the people who make the laws and and there they are sitting in protest because it was against our norms. Similarly, I am still like I can still feel my blood pressure get worked up when I think about Republicans not even giving Merrick Garland a hearing. 
I think my advice for what it is worth, and I recognize the limits of that to both Democrats and Republicans in Congress right now, is that they should go out of their way to protect norms and protect institutions and not to get in the mud with sort of the the way that Trump has exponentially increased that interparty bitterness. So I hated to see that one of the first things to come from Tom Perez after his election was like this Twitter pissing match with Trump. I I just want us to get out of that. And I know that a lot of our Democratic listeners are going to hear that and say, oh, we always have to take the high road. Okay, I I hear you. Now, I will say that it is not my life experience that Democrats always take the high road, but I understand how that's the perspective that everyone has right now. I would call on Republicans to do the same thing, though. And I would say for all of us that, to me, kind of circling the wagons around the parties that does not feel like a recipe for something new or productive. It's just so hard. You know, I, my first thing, my first response to you, is it too late? Is it too late to ask them to protect our norms? Because I'm not sure that it isn't too late and that they've already abandoned. And I would trace the abandonment of those norms back to the Republican Party and the contract with America. I think that's the first brick out of the foundation where we said, you know what? Like, we're not people here trying to get things done for America. We're Republicans. We will take whatever. I mean, I just think that from my perspective as a Democrat, we didn't start this. (laughs) It was Mitch McConnell and Newt Gingrich and people who decided, you know, um, Karl Rove that decided, well, we're going to win at all costs. And it's so incredibly difficult to say, play by new rules. When you're in a game, like make a make a make a strategy that takes that reinvents the game. I mean, that's what you want. That's what that's sort of what everybody's asking. And I would even say to Republicans to a certain extent, we want them to strategize inside a game where the rules will not change. No party strategy is going to change the rules of the game right now in Washington, D.C., I think we have decades of bad blood and um, terrible, damaging campaign strategies and narratives and millions of people across the United States who think that Democrats are trying to destroy America and other millions of people that think Republicans are trying to destroy America. And I don't know who the Democrats could have elected or if it is possible, but if with the Democrats by themselves to undo that, like, I just, I don't know. I don't know if that is something that can be done. Like do I, if I think in 2018, if we sweep the country and all across the country, we get a lot of new representatives and a lot of them are women. Maybe, maybe I think that's a possibility, but I don't know. I mean, like I read this really great thing that said Susan Collins was the real maverick in the Republican Party. And I do think she does that. I think she tries to protect norms. I think she tries to get things done. I think she tries to take the high roads. But man, she's out there by herself. And I just don't know how the the only way that I can really think as a Democrat, if I'm Nancy Pelosi, in which I feel like, yes, okay, let's sit. We will we will decide that this is a path forward and that the American people deserve better. How can I possibly do that if 
they're going to stab me in the back and, you know, not do a... And I think the Merrick Garlic thing is more than just a reflective of, like, oh, man, that was unbelievable. I think that is a simmering source of rage within the Democratic Party. And whatever remaining motivation people had to take the high road, that erased it. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. So here's the gift that Donald Trump has given me. I 
can listen to everything that you just said. And I have less than no desire to debate it on behalf of Republicans. Mm -hmm. I have less than no desire to rehash who started it or to even figure that out. I have less than no desire to list a litany of things that Democrats have done that have contributed to this problem. It just doesn't matter to me because Donald Trump has so disassociated me with from partisanship. And I think that's really helpful for me, right? Because it helps me be more objective. Watching Tom Cotton over the past week, Tom Cotton is someone who I've spent a lot of time being mad at because I think he gives the Republican Party a flavor that I find counterproductive. This week, I've been able to view him very objectively and see some things that I really applaud and see some other things that I'm very critical of. And and I'm not attached to him as like a representative of me in any way anymore. And that's helpful. Historians would say, and we've talked about this as well, that the idea that people think that those who disagree with them are trying to destroy the country is not at all new. Mm-hmm. I think what is new is that we're all participating in it constantly. When have we watched with such fervor the election of a party chair? You know, we're we're attaching meaning to small details of the process constantly, which I think is really healthy if more of us participate in those things. What I think is unhealthy is the way that we're participating in them. So what are Democrats supposed to do? I don't know. And I think the only answer is that each one of them have to make those decisions for themselves. But my perspective is I would just as a Republican and as someone who has watched my party be so good at being a party that it has led us to a very bad place, I would just encourage Democrats to kind of heed that example. No, I mean, I agree. I, I, and I think that there is probably certain people in the side of the Democratic Party that feel the stakes have, because of Donald Trump, the stakes have changed. But unfortunately, because it's a big tent and there's a lot of different people inside of it, some people are going to say, yeah, the stakes have changed. That means obstruct at all costs. And some people are going to say, yeah, the stakes have changed. Let's do things differently. And I, you know, I don't envy Tom Perez. Let's put it that way. But I I think that – go ahead. I guess my question for you is – two questions. If the conclusion is that it's too late to protect norms – maybe this is one question. It's too late to protect norms. The stakes have changed because of Donald Trump. Where does that lead? What are the stakes in if we are past the point of protecting our norms and our process? But here's the thing I think about a lot when we talk about that. I've, you know, when I went to Vox and we talked about, you know, Ezra's Klein's big conclusion from the weekend was our institutions are no longer capable of dealing with the problems of our new century. What if that's true of our institutions politically just as much as it is in healthcare and in an education? Like I, there's a part of me that just thinks, yeah, they they need to be challenged and maybe some of them abandoned. And I think that that is why Donald Trump appealed to people. Is that the the the, the sort of um, path I would have taken the election of Donald Trump to really fundamentally question and assess and perhaps change our democratic institutions? 
No, it is not. But, I, I, you know, continuing down the road that we laid for ourselves as Americans in the face of a completely different economy, a completely different media environment. And I mean, I, I mean, I can argue both sides. I can argue they held up during the 60s. Or, or, or did they? I mean, I don't even know if that's true, right? I don't even know if it's true. I think that our institutions suffered irreparable damage during the 60s, during um, the Nixon White House and Watergate. And I don't know if they never recovered. I don't know if they exposed, if they exposed flaws that we refused to fix. But I think that the anger you see from many Democratic activists and Honestly, the other side that you were talking about at the very beginning is people saying, like, I don't know what the answer is, and I don't know if this could definitely be dangerous, but this is not working. The role of money in our government is not working. The balance between the branches is not working. The um, way our elections and campaigns run is not working. These things are not working. And so instead of saying... Well, we have these norms and we have these institutions and we need to protect them. I think what people are saying is they're broken. We don't want to protect them anymore. And I understand that. And I'm not necessarily sure I completely disagree. And I think that includes the party structures. And I think that includes um, sort of the parties, even the from as micro to the party strategies to as macro as how Congress is currently functioning. I mean, if it's broken, why do we keep protecting it? I think we have to figure out, I, I don't disagree with anything that you just said. I think we have to figure out what are the core things that we don't want to change. Because I think there are some of those things that define our country. I would argue that part of the reason I feel so passionately about the conversation we're having on immigration right now is that I think that our capacity to be a welcoming nation is one of the core things that we we don't want to change in America, right? We want to change lots of layers around it, the process for coming in and out, the way that we treat people once they get here. There There are loads of layers around that core principle that need to be completely rethought. That's how I feel about education, too. I think that we are right as a country to say that we want every person, regardless of socioeconomic status or geography, to have a free, appropriate public education. But then there are layers around that that need to be revisited, right? And so I, I guess to me it's if we want to start chipping away at things, and we should, we should always be doing that. We should do so with real clarity about why <laughs> you know for for what well i th- but i think that the hard the truly hard conversation that we have to face as americans is not everybody feels that way i think that the argument about an illiberal democracy is real right now and we have accepted for ver- for a very long time that liberal values of the, in, the sort of protection of the individual against discrimination was um, one and the same as our democratic principles. Like we protect the ma- minority from the majority. And I think that there are people in this country, and I think Steve Bannon is one of them, that does not believe that that is an American principle worth protecting. That he believes, and, d- and, and certain days, depending on when you catch him, our president believes that it is not important to protect the minority from the majority, and that is not a democratic principle or an American fundamental principle worth protecting, and they want to see that changed. And I think that there are a lot of values that we assume 
are essential to our American identity, where that whether they be for very for a long time free trade, whether they be um, our immigration process, whether they be um, even public education, which isn't a fundamental right as defined by the Supreme Court. So, and I and I think that a woman's right to choose. I think that there are these fundamental values that if you are of a certain socioeconomic class and um, that you assume are just that's written into the fabric of our nation. And I think what you're seeing right now is a growing number of people saying, nope, that's not important to me. Like I'm when we're reading Strangers in Their Own Land with our Pantsuit Politics Book Club, and it's a phenomenal book. And she's talking about how um, – the author goes and lives for five years with the Tea Party members in southern Louisiana. And to them, jobs are more important than clean water and clean air. And they are willing to sacrifice their rights as less powerful group for the economic advantage of the um, presence of industrial manufacturing plants in their town. So that's something I think that we all just assume. Nobody voted against the Clean Water Act in 1970. Nobody, it was, Amer- you know, that was an American value. We deserve, we have a right as Americans to clean air and clean water. But I think that there are Americans now who don't think that that is a fundamental right, who don't think the protection of the environment is, uh, and our natural resources is fundamental to who we are as Americans. And we have to, be honest with ourselves about that as we have these conversations and ask ourselves, um, do the do the institutions we have really protect those rights? Are they um, foundational in a way that cannot change? Or with the right president and the right breakdown and the right polarization and all the right circumstances, do these things that we assumed are fundamental to who we are no longer important? Part of what I always like about our conversations is that I feel like we ultimately arrive at the same cores, but we come at them from two different angles. So I would describe the protection of the minority from the majority as a conservative principle, too. And I would characterize education and clean water and you know, trade for the benefit of everyone as responsibilities versus rights, you know, but I think that that's the tension. That to me is illustrative of how important it is to continue to make space for the perspectives of those with whom we don't automatically agree. Because I think holding that tension between us where you say right and I say responsibility and we come at it from different angles that to me is fundamental to what America is, right? It's that tension between those two things and that sense that we we actually all shouldn't be marching in the same direction most of the time that gives us a democracy worth protecting. So I don't know that we solved anything there, but <laughs> but I mean I I guess I guess the maybe what maybe our conclusion is that Democrats what should Democrats be doing right now? They should be asking big questions instead of getting into petty squabbles. And I would say the same thing for Republicans. It's a it's a question asking moment. So up next in the heels, we're going to ask the question, what are we thinking about besides politics? 
So, Beth, what are you thinking about besides politics? I have been thinking a lot about the word loyalty over the past couple of weeks. And I mention this because if anyone has like great think pieces or book recommendations that center on loyalty, I would love to hear about them. I've been thinking about loyalty because I I wonder if often that as a concept becomes a substitute for protection of the status quo or inertia or something instead of um, feeling free to keep things moving. I'm not being very specific, <laughs> but but I just I've kind of gotten myself in knots over like what does loyalty mean and do we see it in the right lens? This morning, the uh, pastor at the church I attended talked about this uh, basilica in Barcelona that's still under construction. It's the the gaudy basilica. And one of the things that he, the architect said when he was asked about why he was designing it in such an unusual way was that the straight line belongs to man and the curved line belongs to God. Hmm. And that that kind of set off all my bells about loyalty again, because I think we view loyalty as such a straight line. And maybe the wiser thing is to view it in more of a curved way. So that's the bizarre thing that's keeping me awake right now. (laughs) Well, you should ask our listeners because they are great resources. They sent me all kinds of amazing emails about intergenerational housing when I brought that up last week. I am currently thinking about documenting the everyday. This is my... Oh, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, sixth year doing Week in the Life, which is a photo documenting um, process project that was first started by Allie Edwards, who's amazing and sort of it's, yeah, I I really want to use the word scrapbook, but that is not, it's a, it's a disgrace to what this is. It's, um, so for seven days, I take Tons of pictures of my family eating breakfast, waking up, taking naps, watching TV. And I write down everything we do for a week just to really capture what our lives are like right now. Because I think we have this tendency to take pictures at Christmas and birthdays and big things. And we sort of forget like what your kitchen counter used to look like when your kids were in elementary school. And those pajamas that the baby stained and you threw away, but they were, the, they were his favorites. And those little tiny things that really make up your everyday life. And this this time it was really exciting because a friend of mine, uh, Jill Seeley, is working on um, a, documenting, a documentary style of photography. And so she came over for our first day of Week in the Life, which was yesterday. We're recording on a Sunday. So she came over Saturday morning and um, recorded, t- took pictures of us for two hours in our pajamas and as we're making breakfast and as we're getting ready. And they are just so beautiful and I love them so much and I I'm so glad I've done this project and I highly recommend it it could be as little or as much as you want but to go back and look at the photos and the receipts and the you know artwork and all the stuff from our first year the first year I ever did it which was it wasn't 2000 it was 2010 so Griffin was a baby and to see how our family's changed and grown what stayed the same and what hasn't is it's really really amazing. And it's one of my favorite things. And I highly recommend it. Well, I love seeing those photos and look forward to seeing lots more. And can't wait to hear from you guys about what you're thinking about this week in terms of politics and otherwise. We'll be back with you on Friday for another episode. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you to our producer, Nicholas Holland, and to our chief creative officer, Dante Lima, for all the work they do to make Pantsuit Politics possible. 
and to all of you for making this community so special. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Pantsu Politic, or Instagram at Pantsu Politics. Please leave us your feedback and send us your ideas for show topics and paint suit primers on social media, or you can email us at sarah at paintsuitpoliticsshow.com or beth at paintsuitpoliticsshow.com.